Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 187. Life begins at the end of your comfort zone. Neil Donald Walsh. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, 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 my Indie Film Hustlers, to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Videoblocks. Now, guys, when I was shooting my show for Legendary Pictures, uh, and I did that 96 pages in four days, I actually got into post and we used a lot of stock footage, stock sounds, and even some uh, graphics from Videoblocks. They are an amazing resource. With your membership, you are granted the rights to use that footage forever in perpetuity on any projects you want to. So if you want to try a seven-day free trial, and by the way, anything you download during those seven days is yours to keep. And if you decide to stay, you get 84% off the yearly membership. It is well worth it, guys. Trust me, if you do a lot of production, it is something you really need. So just head over to videoblocks.com forward slash hustle. And today's show is also sponsored by Masterclass and Martin Scorsese's Masterclass, if you can believe it. Marty is teaching you how to direct films in his amazing new masterclass. I signed up instantly, and I cannot wait for it to come out. To pre-enroll to get early access, just head over to IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash Scorsese. That's IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash S-C-O-R-S-E-S-E. Now, today on the show, we have filmmaker Chris Sobchak. Now, Chris is a filmmaker who created a streaming Amazon series called Please Tell Me I'm Adopted. It's a comedy series, and it took him almost two years to put together. It was done on a very low budget, and they did the entire post-production process by themselves because they just had no money to do the CGI, the sound design, the VFX, color, editing, just everything. And by the way, he also was doing this while working as a drum and percussion technician for Elton John, who he's been working with for years. So a lot of the stuff that he was doing, as far as finishing his series, he was doing on the road. So I wanted to get Chris on the show to kind of talk about his techniques, his tricks, how he put this all together, and what his experience was like working with Amazon and putting it all up on their platform, and how he's marketing it, how he's getting it out there, how much attention he's getting for his series, everything, guys. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Chris Sobchak. I'd like to welcome to the show Chris Sobchak, man. Thank you so much for being on the show, brother. 
Absolutely, thank you, Alex. It's uh, it's actually a real honor and privilege. Uh, I love I love your 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 product, man. It's great to actually uh, communicate with other filmmakers and and people that are searching for the right answers, you know, and actually trying to push the envelope with gear and push the envelope with what's possible and indie filmmakers. It's really cool. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it, man. So first and foremost, why in God's green earth did you get into this business? And how did you get into this business? <laughs> well, that's actually a very long and convoluted story. Um, the short version. When I was, yeah, when I was growing up, uh, both of my parents, as it turned out, were college professors, PhD college professors. And <laughs> strangely, the um, area of expertise that they ended up landing in uh, at least initially, and my mother has gone and done a variety of other things as well, but was in the, the critical study side of filmmaking. Uh-huh. And so my father taught uh, at the University of Utah, still teaches there, he's retired, um, in the out of the English department, but nonetheless taught uh, critical studies uh, film courses. Um, my mother did the same thing, both at um, in Utah at different moments, uh, across the U.S. as so she was getting her own degrees, uh, Santa Cruz, and eventually ended up as the associate dean of uh, the uh, film and television at uh, UCLA under Gil Cates, who did the uh, Oscars for many, many years. So I sort of came out of that growing up in movie theaters. First uh, first breast I ever saw was in Fellini's Amarcord. Um, <laughs> things, things that scared me when I was growing up were, were things like Psycho and, and uh, Not Freddy. And the most terrifying thing I ever saw was uh, at way too young an age was um, uh, David Lynch's Eraserhead. Oh, Jesus. And, um, <laughs> and I still actually have nightmares about that film. But nonetheless, I, I sort of try to, you know, you either do what your parents do or you go run screaming the other direction. And I ended up in the music industry uh, as a drummer and, uh, uh, and now at this point uh, a drum technician, which basically means I uh, take care of other musicians' equipment on the road or in the studio. And my current employee, uh, wonderfully, is uh, working as the drum and percussion technician with the Elton John Band. Uh, who is this Elton John you speak of? Uh, he's this uh, English <laughs> piano player. Look him up. You know, might be. Uh, and terrifyingly, I've actually been doing that um, on and off. This is the I'm in in the midst of my 17th year working with Elton. Oh wow! Uh, touring the globe, working in the studios, and we average he averages almost 100 shows a year, if not more. Um, he between loves solo, yeah, he he loves to play. He's an amazing boss. I, I couldn't be happier or luckier. And so, as I was trying not to end up in the film business. Um, I met a wonderful lady and uh, made her my wife. Thankfully, the, the stupid fool said yes. Mm-hmm. Um, her name's Nicole Sobchak. Um, and she actually, obviously, is a, a New York trained actress uh, stage. She comes out of the Esper School there um, and has basically um, you know, gone through Second City's Conservatory here. She's just uh, an amazing auteur, um, writer. Uh, director, producer, and um, most importantly for her, she's an actress first and foremost. So one of the things that um, we were very lucky here in Los Angeles is we were championed by um, the late, great Gary Marshall. Mm. And Gary, at one different moment, said to my wife, Nikki, um, said, you know what you need to do? You need to actually push in. You need to make some content. And um, one of the things he suggested was get some get your people together. Everybody wins. You get a DP who wants something for his reel. You get good actors together. You get a good writer together. You put together little vignettes and you can you can make your own stuff and actually make sure it looks pro, make sure it looks good. And basically the only people, to be quite honest, on a on a 
project like that that don't need anything for their reel are going to be your grips and maybe the person running crafty. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, it's like those people, you know, you end up paying. But just like being in a student film program, you you sort of have a lot of leeway and you get great products. So I started getting pulled in very – this is a number of years ago – pulled into the producerial side to put all this together, which was not any big deal for me. Um, and over the years, this has ramped up because um, – uh, my wife and I have started our production company called Raptastic Productions, and um, we basically had a, a little project that was going on. Um, and my wife, when she was in Second City, and this is our show that's now on Amazon uh, worldwide called Please Tell Me I'm Adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife basically was in her Second City Conservatory final class uh, semester, and she was walking down Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, there was uh, a young lady walking the other direction past her uh, wearing a burqa and uh, two girls walking directly in front of her started trash talking this this girl in the burqa that had gone the other way and they were talking about how the this girl in the burqa had um, you know set women's rights back 30 years and all this mm-hmm. really negative mm-hmm. stuff at which point my wife sort of being in this comedic mode said hey wait a minute what if what if a person, a woman, just comedically, what if she didn't want that? What if she wanted to just have no responsibilities? And so uh, out of that came a sketch <laughs> that was going to go into her Second City Conservatory class show, as they do. They put a whole show together, and they stay together as a troupe. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, they realistically don't necessarily have um, – you know. Some some things make the show, some things don't. In this particular case, this sketch, uh, reluctantly, my wife pulled it from the show because she thought there was something more there. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry about that phone there. She thought there was something more there, something more exciting, something special. And uh, so as a result, after uh, she had graduated conservatory there at Second City, she decided, hey, let's get a group of people together. I just need to purge this wonderful idea. I need to just put something up. Let's just do something quick, down and dirty. Put it on YouTube. It'll be great. Mm-hmm. And so she basically um, uh, started putting the writing together, and they had spitballed ideas and things like that. And I remember waking up. My wife woke up next to me in bed, sat bolt upright the day after they had sort of flushed it out, mm-hmm. um, and she had come up with the, the concept of the little sketch, and she literally sat bolt upright and said, oh, my God, Chris, wake up, wake up. This isn't just a sketch. This is the basis for a series. And, of course, I sat bolt upright and went, oh, God, what's this going to cost me? Um, <laughs> and that's how Please Tell Me I'm Adopted started. So, of course, at that point, we're like – Probably like every other producerial, you know, first attempt, if you will, from film school, you're kind of falling all over yourself, making mistakes and trying to fix them as you go. But what was great is because we brought in some really great people um, and we crowdfunded uh, almost all of the production funding, uh, we you know, wrote proper scripts. I put it into movie magic, you know, scheduling and budgeting. I got very quickly up to speed doing all of the executive producer and producer jobs for everything from funding to um, obviously even legitimizing our, our company, tax ID, bank accounts, every mm-hmm. other thing that, you know, you kind of, okay, we got to ramp this up because we're kind of really doing this. At which point it really got very wonderfully real um, after the first 
full day of shooting when people uh, that we trust in the industry were looking at the dailies and we're going, wow, you can't just put this on YouTube. You actually have to do something more with this. This is not only is this great, the concept, but it looks great, shot great. The actors are great. Um, you've got something here. You can't just phone the rest of it in. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we really sort of overnight morphed into a very serious um, production you know, company that really was taking all of this, whether it be the glass um, that we were using, which uh, thankfully Kathy, uh, amazing woman at Panavision, who's good friends with our DP on the project, you know, helped us. Uh, we shot with Panavision lenses. Um, that must you know, have been nice. It was terrifying. I don't think I've ever, uh, I don't think I quite ever understood the power of a good piece of glass. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, one of our, we had two different DPs or camera ops that were, were working at the time for us uh, on the project. And one of them was actually almost physically scared to put the, uh, you know, you can, $10,000 zoom on right. the camera. Yeah. Um, if you want, you could stop, you could stop and t- unplug that phone. If you could, that'd be great. Yes. If you don't mind, hang on one second. <sighs> Sorry, Alex, I'll be there in two seconds. Sure. Sorry about that. You'll have to have to throw it into isotope spectral repair. Yep, not a problem. All so, right. anyway, uh-huh. uh, so anyway, as as I was saying, so uh, very quickly we realized, okay, you know, things like the glass you have, the rib package you have, the you know, actually even just the knowledge base of the cameras, um, and you know, do you know how to set your fans so that between takes it turns on because it's hot where you are, and you know, but it's you, you the minute you go live, you. Hey, wait a minute. We're, we're, what's that noise? Where are we picking that up from? Mm-hmm. Um, stupid stuff like that that you stumble over and go, oh, okay. And one of the things that was most amazing for me on uh, the journey between, you know, for my wife and I is what you start realizing. And I don't know if you've experienced this yourself. At the end of the day, you may have these great people who say, I can do that. But hmm. if, you're the, if you're the captain of the ship, um, it's your money, it's your project. It's your production company and your moniker. Mm-hmm. It all does come back down to you. And, mm-hmm. you know, you obviously have to put your team together. But you also have to be prepared to um, realize that sometimes people are overstating their abilities. Sometimes people. What? In the film you, business? No. Every, every so often. <laughs> um, and, you know, and they mean well. They don't mean to put you in a situation where your back is against the wall. And at the same time, then you have two choices, fold up your tent and go home or figure it out. And um, one of the greatest things I was ever told about producing came from um, actually uh, Gary Marshall's uh, co-producer and executive, uh, you know, executive at uh, Henderson Productions named Heather Hall, who's one of our co-producers on Please Tell Me. And um, mm-hmm. we've got other projects we're working on. I was literally at um, a gas station in the San Fernando Valley with a uh, uh, picking up some grip equipment and something I can't even remember at this point what had happened. I was literally standing in the 97 degree heat weeping and I called her and she calmed me down and she said, look, Chris, it's okay. She said, here's how this is going to go. 
from years of experience on studio movies as well as indies, she said, being a producer is about putting together a really, really great plan and a really, really great team. And then you're going to expect that absolutely nothing will happen to that plan. Um, and in fact, because you did put a good plan together, your job from that point forward is to carry a really big fire extinguisher every day, put out one fire at a time, don't lose your head, and just prioritize what you need to get done now, not necessarily what has to happen for tomorrow just yet. And that has been the greatest advice um, that I got because it saw me through days where things were at different moments completely impossible and untenable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet we managed to push through. We managed to you know, make our deadlines. We managed to get the footage in the can. And in certain circumstances, especially in the post world, which is turned into quite a, 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 a beautiful challenge for Nikki and I. Um, well, we'll, we get, we'll get it. We'll get yeah. into the post stuff, but I wanted to ask you what, what, uh, how did you keep costs low on on such? Like, I'm assuming this was semi shoestring budget. Uh, this is probably uh, more shoestring than you can imagine. Uh, obviously, we, as most uh, indies do, you underestimate what you need, and you <laughs> because, because you want to, you want the green light, you want to do it, you want to go. And we basically crowdfunded um, a good portion of the the principal photography uh, budget. Um, the rest was filled in literally out of my own pocket, mm-hmm. out of, uh, and I. at which point we got to that moment of, great, we've got everything we need. Now we're in post. What do we do? And it really came down to actually saying, you know what, with the, with the vision uh, that my wife has, and obviously being the showrunner of the show, she really has Final Cut. And Final Cut and her eye would have been completely impossible to do any sort of traditional uh, post-production workflow. Uh, (laughs) It really came down, it would have been too many hours, too many changes, too many adjustments to get it right. And so as a result, um, we did it all ourselves. We physically did all the post ourselves. I learned whatever programs we needed to learn. I uh, consulted with some amazing people in Hollywood, and I will say that's one of the greatest lessons that I learned in this particular project that have now moved me forward where I'm I'm actually getting paid to do post stuff for people, mm-hmm. uh, blessedly, and, and help with product design and things of that nature is it, it, real true Hollywood professionals are, like yourself, are willing to give their knowledge base. They're willing to answer questions. They mm-hmm. love to be involved in solutions. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean they're going to work for you for free. doesn't mean that they're going to you know, give you great glass for nothing or anything. But when you have a really good question that excites them and you find true uh, visionaries or, or passionate people within the film industry – they want to know the answer too. So suddenly they're on the ride with you. And we had uh, one of those was a gentleman named Michael Tronic, who's a, a big time film editor, Academy Board member. And he was sort of my guru of post-production. Um, and anytime I needed connection or advice or like, what, what, what are we color grading to? What's our standard? You know, what are mm-hmm. they doing on House of Cards? Mm-hmm. So, that, so that if, my show looks good and House of Cards looks good. That's great because if somebody's monitor's miscalibrated and they're watching House of Cards and they look bad, I can look bad. Mm-hmm. I just can't have it the other way around. 
Um, and, you know, so those sorts of questions, uh, he always had somebody, if he didn't know himself, that he could send me to, some of whom have become, you know, my greatest proponents and friends. I mean, um, and some of the companies, as I said, have seen what I've done as an independent filmmaker with their equipment and with their software and have said, wow, you can't do that. Can you tell us how you did that? So, um, yeah, so what, so what, uh, first of all, what camera did you shoot the movie, the show on? We- we actually um, we shot the actual principal photographer for, for this season was shot on a red epic. Okay. Um, we actually uh, now have such a wonderful close relationship and I with Blackmagic and I've used a lot of their cameras since. Mm-hmm. Um, the red product was really nice, but I actually think I prefer the Blackmagic product overall. Um, the, lo- the looks a little bit different. Yes, it is a little bit different. Um, but we did shoot the shoot the first season on Red Epic. As I said, we were lucky enough to have uh, uh, Cinema Primes and uh, Zooms from Panavision, which I mean, you can't really go wrong with that. You're you're good. You're good. And we did <laughs> shoot the you know intentionally because uh, as we started, we weren't sure where we were going with this. We did shoot it all in in 5K um, oh, on wow. the Red. So so basically, we knew we had what we would need to deliver a 4K UHD output, which is what we did. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of the streaming services and distribution, uh, networks, uh, you don't necessarily have to by law have 4k content, mm-hmm. but they actually take you a lot more seriously if you do. Um, and also obviously just visually, I mean, let's be really honest, whether or not anyone's actually got a 4k TV doesn't matter. Um, down is always better than trying to up res and, yep. uh, and also, it saved our it saved our bacon in the post pro, uh, you know uh, post world unbelievably because there was trash footage and repurposed footage that we were able to do things with, which of course you could never have done if you were at same resolution as output. Right, exactly. And and we've had on this on this podcast and on the website, I've had multiple conversations about 4K and the the ability to it. And I always say, if you can afford 4K and can afford the 4K workflow at a high resolution, I'm not talking about a 4K compressed mp4 i'm talking about real 4k uh then do it absolutely but you don't have to and it's not a deal breaker you can no definitely not and you know if it's an original netflix they have to be 4k but if netflix is buying for it they'll take 1080p uh and they're comfortable and because most people don't have a 4k monitor that's right Uh, so it's not it's not absolutely necessary but uh but i'm sure that working at 5k uh, workflow was not easy. Now, did you cut it in DaVinci? What What was the actual what software? We actually, did you we actually did. We we initially started, if you can believe it, we started the initial piecing it together in Final Cut Pro Seven. God help you. Um, <laughs> and yes, exactly. And obviously, where we really instantly knew we were going to have a problem because, again, as I told you when we started this, we we didn't know where this was going to end up, and sure. it, it it the project upresed really quickly. Um, if you will. And so ultimately we ran into before we got too far in, you know, we we're just piecing edits together and we were kind of going, this is a dead end workflow because it, we don't really want to go into Final Cut X. Um, certainly don't have access to an Avid. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, there's Vegas and there's these different Premier, platforms sure. and Premiere and whatnot. Okay. Um, and as it turned out, I had already done a uh, tutorial with the um, DaVinci Resolve for color, obviously, prior to it becoming an NLE. Mm-hmm. So I felt pretty comfortable in the interface. So when they came out with their first version of the NLE, um, that 
was, you know, workable for us. I was like, you know what, let, you know, I know we can work in color the way I want to work in here. I know we can deal with the resolution uh, that we want to work at and output most importantly. And we really did. We took the plunge. We actually moved mm-hmm. it all across and we said, okay, we're, we're burning, burning the ships uh, and we're going to have to, we're going this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a decision that thankfully I made because um, Blackmagic's uh, DaVinci Resolve now, especially that they've included Fairlight and everything mm-hmm. uh, with the new 14, um, it's really turned into something that I think is is very progressive for, especially for independent filmmakers who really need to do a lot of this on their own. And it's free. It's um, free, pretty much. Absolutely. It's I mean, I, even even the even the full dongled version now they dropped the price. Uh, three hundred bucks. NAB another three hundred. It's nothing. It's I mean by comparison, it's absolutely nothing. And I will say, uh, not to sound like a poster child, but. Um, the philosophy, because I've even asked some of my colleagues and friends who work at or with Black Magic, and said, "Why are they giving this away?" And um, the owner and uh, the the general culture of the company is, "Hey, if we give this away, you know, p- people are going to they're going to maybe they're going to pay that little bump to get the dongle, and then on top of it, it integrates with all of our you know uh, cameras. It integrates with all the rest of our stuff." The warm and fuzzy feeling of the fact that it's all staying within the family and it's working for them and we're being attentive to what they're asking us to make the product do uh, is going to be how we make our profit. And we don't need to make it on this. And if anything, it's, you know, it's the uh, it's the it's the carrot they want to dangle. And I think, you know, the other it's thing heck is of a carrot. <laughs> it is. And, and also one of the things that they really felt strongly about, which is funny in all things in, in my mind, coming from a company that initially obviously was. You know, I mean, they're original color correction machines and, um, you know, studio installs are like, you know, hallowed ground, you know, hermetically sealed rooms with mm. perfect lighting and, and you know, $40,000 calibration, you know, uh, calibrated monitors and this kind of stuff. And they suddenly said, hey, well, you know what? We actually think everybody deserves to have the, the, the software technology. You might not be able to afford the room. And you might have to come up with your own way to make sure you've got a, a you know grading monitor that's going to work for you. Mm-hmm. But we think everybody deserves access to this because everybody deserves the ability to make their art. Amen. And and I love that about uh, Black Magic. Yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan of that as well. Yeah. And I and I, and very similar to your story, I did the exact same thing when I did my first feature, which was I was on Final Cut Seven. I'm like, I don't want to go to X. I don't want to go to Premiere. And I bet I've been a colorist for. 10, 12 years. And I was like, well, there's that edit tab. Let me give it a shot. And I literally just burned this, burned the ships, as you said. And I was like, okay, we're, we're color grading raw and we're editing raw in, in resolve. And it was, it was a wonderful experience. Really, yeah, really wonderful. Experience. I, I, I have to agree. And, and, and as I said, it's only gotten better with each, uh, you know, next version. And as I said, some of the stuff that I was able to do now, the thing with police tell me I'm adopted that has brought a certain amount of trade, um, and industry interest to what Nikki and I did mm-hmm. uh, was the fact that obviously, as I said, both you know Nikki and myself, we physically did all the post. We did all the motion graphics, we did all the titles, we did all the animation, uh, all of the color, obviously all the edit, the sound design, mm-hmm. the foley, the dialogue mixing, the ADR, everything except the actual original composing. We temped stuff in, and our uh, wonderful composer named Heath Allen uh, in. Um, uh, Austin mm-hmm. did that. And then obviously all final outputs, uh, all uh, 
artwork, everything. We did physically all of it. Um, and I did it on a MacBook Pro maxed out with portable, you know, uh, higher speed hard drives and uh, all over the world while on tour uh, with the Elton John band. So you're, you're posting a full series while you're on the road with Elton John. Yep. That's pretty insane. It was completely, uh, it was completely nuts. I hope to maybe never quite do it like that ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it would probably kill me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the way I sort of did my math and I would never want to actually try to add up man hours cause then I would oh, no. jump off a bridge. Yeah, of course. But, but it was one of those things where on a day off on the road, um, I would probably put in 12 to 14 hours uh, on the show. And then obviously being as I was all the departments today, it might be sound. And then I might be bouncing into color on another episode or I might be, you know, doing this or that. And- I th- you know, I think – and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think nope. that what you are doing and in part also what I do is being that kind of one-man band – uh, kind of model is, I think, truly the future of filmmakers, uh, indie filmmaking, because yes. you've got to do more than one job. You've got not you got to do more than five jobs. Yeah, you, I mean, you may you may choose perhaps that uh, you want to get it close and then have somebody tweak because you can afford that, or you may choose, hey, I know how to really make color look good, so I'm going to spend my budget because I'm not so good at sound on sound. But I totally agree. I think having the ability and even just moving forward in the more traditional vein, I think as a producer, the mere fact that you put your hands on the software, that you've actually done every one of these jobs means that when someone from a department comes to you and says, I need this, or this is what that's going to take, you're so much better informed to know whether or not this person has any idea what they're talking about or if what they're asking for is not reasonable. Maybe they're padding the bill a little bit. Maybe they really don't know how to accomplish the the task. Mm -hmm. So I I, I think every filmmaker should go through one trial by fire of having to do every single thing. Absolutely. Um, just to know the workflow. And I know know, going on a set and sitting in a production trailer, yeah, you learn how to make movies and fill out forms and stuff, but it's not the same. No, it's it's, it's not. And only when you kind of start building up, I always call it the toolbox that you build up over the course of your career. You keep throwing new tools in the toolbox and you, and now you can literally grab a camera, go out and shoot content and and finish it yourself without having to count on anybody else if you can help it. You know I mean? That's right. That model works at a, on an indie level, you know, yep. and Robert Rodriguez actually showed it. They could actually work on a larger scale as That's well. That's right. That's right. But at a certain point, it, you know, you have to bring in, you know, VFX teams and things like yep. that or else, you, or else right. you just physically can't do it all. That's but, right. uh, you know, but if you're doing it on a on a low budget or an indie budget of 100 grand or lower – yeah, you can do this. I mean, it's yes, it's absolutely doable. So I'm I'm so glad. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show because I wanted to show the 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 listeners that this is kind of the new way of doing things. And 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 I don't know how much experience you have working with other filmmakers, but uh, you know, one thing I've seen again and again is a lot of filmmakers want to be successful, be famous, be rich, make their movies, but they don't want to put that work in. And they're yep, like, oh, no. I just want to write or I just want to be the director. Yeah, I'm like, you can't do that anymore. I'm like, you're not going to come on the set with a monocle and a blowhorn, you know, and, right. and a beret and say you're the director. Those days are gone. No. And, and in fact, it's even true. Uh, you know, my wife realized as an actress, and this is an interesting thing you bring up because it's really true. As I told you, my wife's first love is as an actor. 
Um, she, that's where her passion really ignites on set. Um, but she realized, and, and again, this was Gary Marshall, um, who has been nothing, you know, was nothing but an amazing champion of our company of my wife, uh, as a force in Hollywood. And one of the things that he pointed out, uh, and we've seen is the fact that even in the major studio system, they would so rather hire an actor who has written, maybe directed, maybe produce their own things, has a company, because they want to know that they don't have a diva in a trailer who won't come out because the green M&Ms didn't show up. They want well, somebody who knows that there is time is money, that this is how a movie set works, that you are one part of it, and how you fit in, and why you have to hit your mark, and why you have to nail your lines, and when you have an adjust, that if you don't get it right the first time, we are burning daylight and there's three more setups to go. You know, that's a really good point. Well, first of all, if I don't have my green M&Ms, obviously I can't work. But yeah, uh, I mean, obviously. But uh, but seriously, though, you're absolutely right. That's a really good point. I've never even thought about that because that actually is a really good perspective because, you know, when you're dealing with actors that are just actors, and it's so sad to say, but that's a great point. Like, they want a hustler. Yeah. They want... They want to know that you're on their team and that you get what's happening on the set and not just your little tiny microcosmic part. And I think that's, as you're saying, even true, the knowledge base in the toolbox, whether or not you end up doing it or whether or not it informs who you're going to hire to do it, mm -hmm. uh, suddenly it streamlines your workflow and makes sure that you're, you're not hiring idiots. And obviously you're doing what you need to do and what you can do, and you're farming out what needs to get done faster or by a team, or you can't, but you're also then much more intelligent with what you're going to do with the limited resources you have as an independent. Yeah, absolutely. And again, again, and I'll say it one, one, one more time, I mean, as a filmmaker, you really need to know as many uh, jobs as you can. Yeah, to be amen. able to, to be able to to do to produce this, like you said, you wouldn't have been able to produce your show yeah. unless you guys did it all yourself, and you learned on the job, which is kind of nutty. Yeah. But you know what? I I just I DP'd my first feature. I had there never I never DP'd my a feature before, uh, so I was like, I learned on the job, and I yeah, learned I, something. I, I got pulled in. Um, I was executive producing in my office upstairs, and I uh, we ran into some delays on the first day of shooting that. It cost us time. And um, I went to my department heads and I said, guys, we can't we can't finish the shoot if you guys are going to work this slow. You mm -hmm. know, you got to re redesign your shot list and you got to get this. You, we have to cover this many pages in a day. I can't mm -hmm. help you. Right. Right? I don't have the funds to go over. So there you go. Mm -hmm. And they came back to me. They said, we've, we've worked the shot list, but we have one stipulation. I'm like, OK. <laughs> and they said and they said, uh, you're we need you to step in as our first A.D., and I was like, okay. And I'm not kidding, Alex. This is not one of my prouder <laughs> moments, although I fooled everybody, which was great. Uh -huh. I literally went that night. I said, sure. All right. And, you know, I've managed stages. I've done different sure, things. Sure. So I wasn't worried about doing the job at all. Uh -huh. I understood that the, you know, being a first AD is about keeping all the departments talking, the mm -hmm. logistics of actually keeping the set moving. Mm -hmm. You save two minutes here, four minutes there, seven minutes there. You make sure you don't go over on your time and you basically keep things moving. And when you add that up at the end of a week, you've saved six hours. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, though I've been on 
umpteen sets, though I've paid attention and absorbed like a sponge. Mm-hmm. I, I went onto Wikipedia and looked up first AD, <laughs> at which point I jotted down, and I'm very good. If I write something down, I don't actually have to refer to my notes. I remember it. I, I literally wrote I needed to use the next morning. You know, okay, back to one, everybody. You know, first positions, last looks, and fooled everybody. And actually, at the end of the shoot, after all the days we did, um, I went to one of the more professional uh, members of our team. And I asked him, I said, you know, this really was my first opportunity to step in as first AD. How'd I do? And he said, wow, I had no idea you hadn't done this, like, for many times. That was a huge compliment that I had managed to sort of not only do the job right, but fit into the mold of what you're supposed to do, what you're supposed to say. Let's just get on with work. Hey, you know, uh, I'll tell you what, like, like uh, going on, on Wikipedia to look up the job you're about to do the next day. A lot of times, and this is not always going to end well, but a lot of times you got to fake it till you make it. That's right. Uh, and, but, you know, you're also a seasoned pro in many other a- avenues of not only this business, but the music industry and stuff. So y- you have a little bit of depth to fall back on. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to a 20 year old trying to do this or still, I, I still, I, I, I do think one of the things, you know, you asked what I, I've been recently, strangely put in this role because of what we've done. And, and I was lucky enough. Um, I got named to the studio daily 50 at NAB, uh, which I initially thought was a, like a scam, you know, one of those things where, Hey, for $50, we'll put you in our registry of winners and get an award. Right. I actually, exactly. And we'll give you an award, but you, but have, you have to pay, pay for the award. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I thought it was a scam. And then I contacted uh, some of the other companies that were up for technical awards from Studio Daily. And they were like, no, it's real. And I'm like, well, did you nominate me? I, they were like, no, but it's great. How'd you get that? And uh, I found out later it was because someone had heard about what we had done and the almost impossibility of it. Uh-huh. Um, and I, actually can now say I won an award uh, for doing this stuff, which makes me giggle. Um, But at the same time, I've had a lot of people now coming to me going, what should we do? How did you do this? How did you learn these programs? What was the knowledge base? And I think maybe the the disconnect is that the kids in the film school think it's too hard to learn it. And Mm -hmm. instead, you know, even as you said, you got to fake it and, you know, learn, learn while you earn. Um, potentially is the reality, you know, for me is it's like, whether it be ripple training or, or lynda.com, you know, you whip through that stuff as fast as you can. You retain about 60 to 70% of it. Then you go do your own work and you remember somewhere along the way, Hey, wait a minute, I'm missing a quick key here that I remember the guy talked about. Let me run back. Let me find that 10 minute quick time movie and I might actually watch it at normal speed. That was mm-hmm. one of my tricks. I, I literally would take the, um, the ripple or lynda.com, you know, uh, uh, elements and I would actually download them and then play them with VLC at about two and a half times the speed. Mm-hmm. So it sounded like an auctioneer. Hey, you're going to do the same thing color and we're going to do it. And then I retain 90% of it and then go on and work on my project. And when I hit a roadblock or a wall, I'd be like, hang on. They talked about this. I go find it, and obviously, once you do it yourself, you've internalized it for life, and you move on. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was pretty, pretty insane. And I think that's maybe what more indie filmmakers have to realize that yes, there is a learning curve, but no one says you can't be working while you're doing that. 
And, you know, there's good people out there, as I said, uh, professionals who use this, you know, the stuff, even people, even uh, buffoons like myself. If someone asks me a question, uh, uh, I had a a cinematographer friend who was having trouble with some of the caching features in Resolve, Mm -hmm. which saved my project Mm -hmm. worldwide. And they said, well, you know, I know you said you did this. Can you walk me through it? I got on the phone and walked, walked her through it. And she was like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm editing in native, like I'm editing in 5K without proxies. And when I go to my output room, it's full maximized debayer and it, it's working. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm able to actually see in real time what I'm doing. And I was like, yep, there you go. But there's always someone who's willing to give you that knowledge base and help you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just can't be afraid of asking, and you certainly can't be afraid of diving into a new program and forcing yourself, as you say, to put in a little bit of the time to do the work. I think um, I think that's the one thing that a lot of filmmakers are missing is that they have to understand that this is work, and this is not. And I've said this a million times. I'm sure everyone listening will will go, "Okay, Alex, we've heard it before," but it's the truth. This is not a short game. This no. is a very long game. It's not a one year plan. It's a ten year plan. Yeah. No. And, absolutely. You know, and you have to kind of go through everything. You have to go through all the the, the rough stuff uh, to come out, but that's what it takes in this world. And this world is changing every every day a little bit more, and it's not going yes. towards the the past. It's going towards the future. So you'll need to know more and more and more and to be your own DP, be your own editor, be your own colorist, right. be your own producer, your own writer, and so on. Now, I wanted to talk to you a little, a little bit about the distribution of, of the show. Yeah. Uh, what was the distribution plan? Was it for money or was it for exposure? And why did you choose uh, Amazon Prime? Uh, it, as was your- an, it, it was a very interesting story. Initially, ideally, as I told you, the uh, impetus for the whole project was sort of to exercise the demons uh, and just put something up on YouTube. Then it turned into, wait a minute, this is a series. This is a great concept for a series, which then turned into, wow, this is starting to look really, really good. You can't just put this up. It needs to be seen. I think initially it wasn't even so much about like, hey, let's go make a out in a way that people can actually see it, uh, enjoy it, and hopefully create, you know, a demand for the product that can lead to being able to do more um, and do a second season, do a third season. Uh, We have guest stars that we want to have come on the show and things of that nature. And so initially, as I said, it was all about production and and getting it done, um, which was a mammoth task in itself, as as obviously you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But then it came down to, great, what's, where's our home? You know, we we do not want to just put this up on YouTube so they own it, um, and we don't have anything except maybe you know commercial revenue that they get to pick. Um, and then we started looking at the streaming services. Obviously, um, uh, our first port of call that we looked at was Hulu. At the time, Hulu was doing quite well, and uh, we sort of uh, Netflix wasn't doing anything. Our project is um, something that Jeffrey Katzenberg was touting, and and some of the um, uh, you know, media, we actually have a short form original comedy series. So meaning each episode comes in at anywhere between eight and 12 minutes, depending on the episode. And in some ways it's akin to, uh, obviously a regular series premise, uh, a through line throughout the season and the series, but each episode is micro compacted, um, it's covering a particular topic that we're, we're spoofing mm-hmm. and, with the short attention span of kids today, we really wanted to sort of find a niche to, to not be the 
30-minute episode or the hour-long episode. We want it to be that one. If they've got time to watch the crazy cat video on YouTube, they got enough time to watch an episode of Please Tell Me I'm Adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, share it similarly. Um, and we've had so far very good success with that. So uh, we were looking at this and Netflix doesn't really at the time, they didn't really have anything really in that vein. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we looked at Hulu and Hulu was doing some short form stuff. And when we contacted and started to submit, you know, and look at Hulu, the problem was Hulu suddenly out of nowhere stopped accepting submission yep. and content mm-hmm. because they were going to retool their um, financial model to match Netflix instead of a revenue based. They decided, uh, uh, you know, revenue sharing base. They were going to go to uh, straight licensing as Netflix has. Yep. Well, they literally stopped accepting content for over three months. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm aware. Now, how, <laughs> how, the, how how there can be anything on their uh, on their service at that point? I have no idea. I don't know where the content was coming from, but they refused to even look at anything, mm-hmm. let alone make any deals. And so we sort of sat around and we were like, ugh. At which point we really started looking seriously at how hard Amazon was working to, uh, besides conquer the world, but literally how hard they were working to actually start putting really quality programs and make them available. Um, and Amazon's business model, and this is just this whole sidebar for me, obviously in the U.S. we see it as, hey, I really want stuff shipped to my house, so I'm going to do that. And, oh, wow, I get some free stuff with it as well, video, mm-hmm. audio. Hey, that's cool, man. Well, the rest of the world, the way their uh, Amazon is approaching it is they're selling video and audio and book product. And then they're saying, hey, for just a small little add-on, you can order your stuff from us too. Mm-hmm. So they're actually t- starting to get their business model going outside the U.S. and in new territories by using the video elements, the uh, audio elements and media as a way to get people to start subscribing, which can then makes them, of course, completely captive to any Amazon advertising for their shipping services. Mm-hmm. And, their and, e- and you're in their ecosystem. Absolutely. And you're already loving it because you have this great content. You're seeing these great shows like Please Tell Me I'm Adopted. And you're <laughs> like, wow, for only $2 more, I can have – I can order my you know, duct tape and come <laughs> to my house. So <laughs> right. like, sure, two more euros, I can do that. So I think it's a brilliant idea um, you know, as far as how to create that demand for the product. And so for us, we actually have been riding the wave. We decided – you know, the heck with Hulu. If you can't get your stuff together, we want – we've got a great show. We want to get it out. We want to start moving. Um, we did use an aggregator, which I'm very pleased with, um, a company called Kino Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, we had – obviously, uh, I'm sure you're familiar. We had two different options, major online options for aggregators. Um, and since this was our first project, I really wanted to have that knowledge base of an aggregator. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't so concerned – whether it be the um, you know flat fee base or whether it be a percentage base of, uh, of royalties, um, I wasn't so concerned with that. I I wanted to have that extra bit of help uh, in making sure fulfillment was done properly, making sure that all of the metadata was what it needed to be, um, and I'm actually forever grateful that uh, the people at Kino Nation worked with us to make this happen because they obviously 
have the responsibility of putting everything into the correct format for whatever streaming services and platforms that you pick. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to note, I felt very comfortable with Kino, especially because instead of flat fee, they do take a percentage of your profits, but they don't make dime one unless you make money, okay. which made me feel much more uh, warm and fuzzy about, hey, okay, you're going to take my product around and talk to people I can't get access to. I would like it, uh, you to have a vested interest in why it would be a good idea to represent my product properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that you don't make money until I make money, uh, that instantaneously was obviously very attractive of like, okay, that makes sense to me. You know, why would I pay you 600 bucks and then you say you're going to take something around town? Right, right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't exactly see what your incentive is to work very hard. And I didn't like that. And Nikki didn't like it as well. And as I said, we, we did intentionally, and again, this is a, a media ploy. We could have put our show on a variety of different platforms simultaneously. We chose to make ourselves an Amazon exclusive. Mm-hmm. And that actually seems to carry some weight. You know, people actually see that and, um, Go and subscribe. They buy the show even piecemeal mm-hmm. on Amazon. And uh, there's a certain amount of uh, kind of cachet that comes with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I've had to, on different interviews, I've had to explain to people that obviously the other thing is within the, whether it be Netflix or anyone else's world, and Netflix is a little bit different because obviously they do, if they're going to license you, they're going to pay up front a certain amount. But it's not much. They're, they're licensing a two-year period. And at which point they have whatever they want to do with it. Mm-hmm. So they, they have some incentive to advertise the show. They have some incentive to try to help get the word out, but not much. And well, let me ask you, let me ask you yeah. a question about Amazon Prime. So you you went through an aggregator to go into yes. Amazon Prime, but you could have easily just done Amazon Prime by yourself. That is correct. That is correct. On this particular one, I chose to use the um, use the connection that we had with our aggregator just to facilitate how everything goes up to make sure everything was uh, lined up. And then potentially, obviously, as we move forward, we may open up the first season to other platforms as well. And obviously, it's all already in the pipeline. It's already, um, I can just press a button and off it goes. Now, now, did you did you release it at an Amazon for sale first or was it always Prime? Uh, it actually was Prime and sale simultaneous. We, we basically did our premiere on March 6th. Um, and we basically just did the across the board. Yeah, obviously, if you're not a Prime user, you can just pay for it. If you're a Prime user, it's we get a flat per per minute, uh, you know, viewing or per second viewing. Um, and we just for us, as you said, a good portion of this is, uh, and again, as you said, the ten year plan. Mm-hmm. It's not a one year plan. Um, we put this together. We wanted to, you know, use this as uh, partially as even proof of concept. We've mm-hmm. got a great show. People are watching it. People are reviewing it well. Um, and with X amount of dollars for PR versus X amount of dollars for production, here's what is possible with uh, an increase in, you know, funding and uh, investment in both areas. We can have exponential growth, um, you know, and see a much larger profitability. Now, let me ask you, on the Amazon Prime, when you're being paid per minute, how yes. how are you doing with that? Because I haven't gone down that path yet with my film. It's it's available on Amazon, but I haven't released it on Prime yet. It's only for sale at the moment. So, or I mean, at, 
At, at the moment, we actually are doing very well with that. Obviously, one of the things that is interesting with the Amazon platform that I think is maybe a little bit different with, say, Netflix, because Netflix, of course, is it's a buyout, right? It's a buyout, and it's and it's obviously you either have Netflix or you don't. And because of the cost of it, I don't know necessarily that many people. Yeah, you know, obviously the nice thing with being on either, uh, you know, with, with sort of the business model of Amazon is if someone wants to see your show, they can just go buy it. Um, if they have Prime, however, and one of your sort of goals is uh, to go viral, to actually have a larger audience start talking about your product and start mm-hmm. moving it around, they don't have to pay anything. You, they just become a fan. They mm-hmm. become part of your army. Um, so you, for whatever you lose in dollar value, mm-hmm. I, th- I think you gain in mass marketing that you didn't technically have to PR and pay for. Right. Um, and that's sort of what we've noticed. I mean, uh, we had a, a wonderful occurrence and as I said, we've been pounding the pavement like crazy on our own doing things like speaking to you, which mm-hmm. is fantastic for mm-hmm. the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a phone call out of nowhere. I was out on the road. I think it was in El Paso, Texas, and a nice lady from Time Inc. called me up and said, are you uh, the person involved with the, that Please Tell Me I'm Adopted show? And I said, why, yes, I am. <laughs> and she said, oh, well, you know, could you send, um, you know, we, we, we think we're going to do a little something on your show in the UK. Uh, you know, uh, you, could you send us some information? I said, well, as a matter of fact, I can. And I whipped out our EPK faster than you can. I mm-hmm. think I was still on my iPhone. Mm-hmm. I was like, still on the phone with her. Okay, you should have that now (laughs) Um, with photos and, you know, our bios and all the information about the show and the release and everything. And she was like, oh, that's brilliant. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. She even emailed me back, said that's one of the best little packages I've ever seen. Everything we need is in there. Thank you. Then I never heard anything back. And I was like, okay. And she told me she was with something called the TV Times in mm-hmm. the UK, which of course, in retrospect, having done the research is the equivalent of like their TV guide. Got it. So what the, you know, out of nowhere, I'm watching our numbers and you're getting your UK numbers and your German and your Japanese and, mm-hmm. your, and suddenly I see this huge bump in our UK numbers and I'm like, okay, I mean, I know we've done ads, we've, we've done uh, uh, interviews, we've done this, that, and the other thing, I'm trying to find well, what did that come from? Well, of course, it came from the fact, and I finally got a copy of it. Uh, in in the TV Times, they say um, what else is on, and other than the regular standard BBC listings and things, the ITV and all that, they say, "Hey, here's some other great content you don't want to miss." And they literally had three little little sections, and the top one was Better Call Saul, mm-hmm. the, the middle one was us, mm-hmm. and the bottom was uh, Adam Sandler's uh, Sandy Wexler movie. Not a bad, not a bad uh, group of, uh, not a bad group to be in. I will certainly be wedged between Better Call Saul and uh, Adam Sandler's movie any day. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, people went. So, and again, part of that is if they've got Amazon Prime and they've never heard of you, there's no sweat off their back to check it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, as you move forward, whether it be being able to show um, that you've got a viable project, uh, to be able to show that you have a successful project. Mm-hmm. Obviously, as you well know, um, and then even on top of it, and this is something I think filmmakers don't understand as the you'll get this because you've done it. But the idea that you've done your own feature film and you did it yourself, you know, well, why should I why should I talk to Alex about this project I'm going to be doing? Why should why does why should I interview him to be the, the, 
or the DP, well, he's got these six projects he did. Mm -hmm. Oh, hey, oh, I know that one. I like that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'll meet with him. Otherwise, what's their incentive to take a chance on you or me? Mm -hmm. Um, But when they're like, yeah, they've got a successful show on Amazon. They're doing great. They're working on the second season. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll take that. Suddenly it does uh, legitimize and open doors. Um, Yeah, uh, without question. I mean, once you create a – once you start creating content and creating product that's good – uh, even respectable, not even yeah. like out, like you have to, you know, award-winning monster right. thing. People start taking you seriously because now you're Absolutely. you've just jumped from the ninety-nine percent up into the one percent that actually does something. That's correct, and it, and in fact, that just starts cracking open more doors, and also it, it opens the possibility and brings you into a group of people that are again. Uh, as I said earlier, want to help you succeed. They want to help you with the knowledge base. If they don't know, they'll help you find somebody who does to answer your question or help you. Um, and that's been, as I said, that's been the most awesome thing. You, you really are suddenly in the club. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, for a filmmaker coming out of film school or something like that, or somebody who's never completed a project and put it up on a, on a actual site mm-hmm. other than and and I do think there's nothing wrong with YouTube. There's nothing wrong with any of that. There's nothing wrong with just you know printing your own book. But at the same time, it doesn't carry the weight. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, YouTube, you know, where you can go see the cat video, doesn't have the same cachet uh, yeah. that if you have your feature on it. Like, oh, your features on YouTube, you must have failed. And I hate to say exactly. that, but it. That's true. You know, it, there's like, oh, you're another YouTube series. There's a thousand yep. of them. But being on Amazon, and not that Amazon's doing the same thing. It's opening itself up to a lot of different you know, right. videos and things as well. But Amazon still has that cachet. While Netflix right. and Hulu, those have much larger cachets yep. purely because they're harder to get into. Um, right. So it's fascinating. I mean, your story has been very fascinating, uh, Chris. And uh, I want to thank you so much for sharing it. And I've got a few questions I ask sure, of all course. of my guests. Absolutely. Uh, so first question is, what advice would you give a filmmaker wanting – to make their first feature or their first series? Uh, Realistically, I always say this, technology or no technology, absolutely realize that you're a storyteller. Don't lose sight of the fact that you're trying to tell a story. Figure out what that story is and then use the technology as best you can to tell your story. Because at the end of the day, pretty color is really great. CGI stuff is really nifty. But if you're not telling me a story, it doesn't work on a studio level and it doesn't work on an independent level. Make sure your story is great and be passionate about telling it. Then use the tools to do it. Now, can you tell me what book had the biggest impact on your life or career? Interestingly, it's a series of kids' books and it has nothing to do with filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a author named Arthur Ransom, mm-hmm. and he wrote these English books uh, about these kids. Uh, the one was made into a movie called Swallows and Amazons, and it's about these kids who go away for the summer in the Lake District, and they get on little sailboats, and they basically just imagine and dream, and they they have their own little battles, and they create their own world. And in some ways, as quite a few of my good producer friends have told me, at the end of the day. Your job as a filmmaker, your job as a storyteller is to create the world, make me believe every bit of it and immerse me in it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I felt from those books. And that's what I learned from those books was to dream and imagine and come uh, out the other side with this 
whole world that you've constructed. And that's what being a storyteller and a filmmaker ends up being. So when Nikki comes up with a script for our company or we option something, then it's about let's all create this world and invite people to come into it. Now, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Um, probably to admit when you're wrong. Probably to admit when you're wrong and, in fact, try to do something about it. Um, uh, you know, Try to actually use that as a life lesson of like, okay, yeah, I overstepped my bounds on this or I did something about that. Um, try to change your behavior for the better. And it's going to make everything smoother. You're going to actually – you're not going to run into the same roadblocks again. And people will appreciate when you actually make that effort. Very cool. Now, what are three of your favorite films of all time? Oh, uh, well, you you mentioned one. It's a strange – obviously, uh, you know, everybody says they love it. You know, The Shining. Mm-hmm. I love it just purely because of a lot of the c- cinematography and the imagery um, is – for whatever reason, just sticks in my brain. It is unbelievable the way that imagery stays with you. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most seminal movies, uh, and I'm very excited for the newest one, um, the, the, the not exactly reboot, but the sequel, I guess it would be, is Blade Runner. Ah, oh, yes, um, Blade Runner. And that movie, more than any other movie, for a variety of reasons, um, both when I was very young and... Uh, now that I'm a little bit older, um, it has really been a very, very powerful impact emotionally to me. Um, and then I think oddly, I would say my last choice would probably be going back to more of a genre of films that were so stunning that they sort of let me know what was possible. And that was, if you go back to all of the silent films, uh, silent comedies, the physical comedies, so Chaplin and Buster Keaton, um, and, uh, um, all of those, uh, guys that did these incredibly elaborate physical stunts, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, and of course had to do it all in one take and make it all absolutely seamless and try not to get killed in the process. Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It was something really special. Now, where, uh, where can people find you and find your work? Um, you know, the easiest thing to do is obviously we're all over IMDb. We you know, will be on your podcast here, obviously, which is spectacular. Um, but Please Tell Me I'm Adopted, which is our original short form comedy series, uh, is on um, Amazon Prime, Amazon anywhere in the world. Uh, cool. And how, about, and how about your company or web events? Uh, our company is Raptastic Productions, like you wrapped the shoot, and mm-hmm. it was fantastic. So Raptastic Productions. And uh, if someone does want to get in touch with us, uh, you know, obviously they can go to IMDb and find out all the details there. And uh, yeah, uh, especially with all the press for P- Please Tell Me I'm Adopted, we're kind of like a rash on the web, which is great. <laughs> That's a great term. I like that. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show, man. I really appreciate your time. No, no, absolutely. And, and you know, I think what you're doing with the podcast and the fact that you're taking time out of your own production – to help educate, um, you know, independent filmmakers as to what's possible. I think it's, it's brilliant that you're there. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. So you guys getting ready to go make your own streaming series? I know we're trying to, you know, Jill and I are actually pitching This Is Meg as a streaming series as well to a few studios, and we're going to see if we get any bites. But uh, it, it's just a new world, man. You guys can go out there, not just make a feature film, but make a series. You can make an eight-episode series. They can be 10, 15 minutes each. There's no reason why you guys don't have it. And if you're an actor listening to this show right now, 
There is absolutely no reason why you and a bunch of your acting friends don't get a couple cameras, get a few filmmakers together, and guys, go make a, just write something and go make a series. Put yourselves out there. Stop waiting for people to give you permission to do what you love. Not only actors, but of course, all the filmmakers listening. Don't wait for permission. Just go out and do it. There is no excuses anymore. So I hope you got a lot out of that interview with Chris Sobchak and and definitely check out his series, Please Tell Me I'm Adopted. It will be in the show notes at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 187. And if you guys haven't checked it out yet, definitely head over to our YouTube channel at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash YouTube and check out our new show, The Director Series, where we go deep down the rabbit hole on some of your favorite filmmakers of all time, current and classic. Currently, we have David Fincher and Chris Nolan is up next. So definitely check it out. And as always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia 